Welcome to the Physics Buzz Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. We've got a really wonderful podcast today. We're going to be hearing from Nobel Prize winning physicist Frank Wilczek. Now, there are many great things that Dr. Wilczek could tell us about physics, but he's actually going to share a story that's, well, it's more about people. The story you're about to hear is really the beginning of a series of events that affected everyone working in physics communications at the time. Now, I'll explain what I mean, but first, you really need to hear the story. So, it begins in the spring of 1999. Here is Dr. Frank Wilczek. The late spring of 1999, I got a call from Scientific American because a man named Walter Wagner, who I later learned is a banana farmer in Hawaii, had written a letter to them. And he was worried about black holes getting produced at a new accelerator that was going to open at Brookhaven, uh, what we now call RIC, or Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. And he was afraid that those black holes would swallow Long Island and then the rest of the world. So Scientific American invited me to write a reply. Uh, why me? Allow me to explain that one. In the early 1970s, more than 25 years before this story begins, Wilczek was a graduate student at Princeton University. He and two of his professors made some very powerful predictions about how and why subatomic particles stick together and form atoms. The theories they came up with were mostly accepted as accurate, but they couldn't be tested experimentally. To test them, scientists would have to look inside atoms. And the best way to do that is with a collider. Various particle colliders have been built over the years, but in the 1990s, when Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island decided to build a particle collider that would smash gold atoms, it was clear that this would be the instrument that could explore the theories Wilczek and his colleagues had come up with. My theories predicted that the collisions would produce very briefly a fireball, a little bang, if you like, of gluons, quarks, and antiquarks, similar to what you would have in the very early universe, although only for a very brief time uh, and only in a very small space. In fact, you would reproduce conditions last seen in the universe when it was about a thousandth of a second old. So physicists and cosmologists were, were using the theories to make models of what the earliest moments of the Big Bang looked like, but they'd never been tested directly. And I was supposed to be the authority on what would happen in the collisions. And that's why the Brookhaven Press Office recommended me when they were confronted with Mr. Wagner's letter. So I liked being their go-to guy, so I said, okay. <laughs> In his Scientific American reply, Wilczek addressed concerns about black holes, and he stated, truthfully, that there is a very small possibility that a black hole could be created in a high-energy particle collision. Now, to be clear, there is a possibility, but it is extremely small. Scientists would love to study a micro black hole inside their particle detectors, but it is extremely unlikely that this will ever actually happen. 
But for indulgence sake, we can talk about the kind of black hole that would be created in that very rare scenario. First of all, this black hole would be very, very tiny, smaller than the nucleus of an atom. Yes, black holes theoretically come in many sizes, and it would also be extremely short-lived. It would disappear in less than a trillionth of a second, not really enough time to eat the Earth. The image people have of black holes is that they're these giant gaping maws that swallow things that stray into their vicinity. But when you're talking about really, really, really tiny black holes, uh, their ability to swallow anything is pretty negligible. They're more likely to get swallowed than to, be, than to swallow something. In any case, Wilczek then laid out the clincher argument as to why Rick or any particle accelerator will not eat the Earth. See, collisions with just as much energy as any man-made particle collider actually occur naturally in the atmosphere every single day. High energy particles coming at us from space, these are called cosmic rays, they collide head-on with particles in the atmosphere. And this had been going on for billions of years, and yet Earth is still here. So all of this was so obvious and trivial, I thought, that I felt kind of embarrassed to put my name to it. Uh, any fool could write that stuff, but I was supposed to be brilliant, a future Nobel Prize winner. And so I decided to make it interesting and unique and worthy by adding some spice to it. So... It happens that there's a much more plausible and interesting possibility for how a new accelerator could destroy the Earth than black holes. This would be uh, something called strange matter, and lump, little lumps of it are called strangelets. Uh, strangelets, if they existed, would be for ordinary matter, uh, similar to what Kurt Vonnegut imagined in his novel Cat's Cradle, where there was the stuff Ice-9 that water might turn into. In Cat's Cradle, Ice-9 is a form of water that is solid at room temperature. And if you started with a little seed, this other phase of water, it could start converting water as we know it into Ice-9, and that would be really bad news. Now, strange matter, if it exists could be similar to ice-9 in that it could convert regular matter into strange matter just through simple contact. Strange matter is theoretically made up of the same particles as regular matter, but they're organized differently. So it's an extremely mutated form of matter. So that would obviously be bad. But then I explained, having made it interesting, uh, why the new accelerator was not really likely at all to produce these things uh, based on mechanistic arguments. But and then I also repeated the clinching argument from Cosmic Rays that if it could have happened, it would have happened already. So I wrote all that up, and it was pretty long, my reply, like an article, uh, much longer than the original letter from Wagner that it was referring to. And so when I sent it to Scientific American, they said, thanks, it's wonderful, but we only have very limited space in our letters section. 
so we'll have to make a few cuts. And they did. And the cuts weren't exactly surgical, unless you mean by surgery, amputation. And by the time they sent uh, the stump back, I was prepared, preparing to go to my secluded summer retreat in New Hampshire, and I didn't want to spend time arguing with them and what I knew would be a lost cause. So I just glanced at the thing and said, okay, and went into hiding in New Hampshire as I planned. And I had a lovely few weeks of reading and thinking and writing and swimming, very peaceful and idyllic like I do every summer. But then one day in late July, my brother-in-law unexpectedly arrived at our camp on a motorcycle. And he conveyed instructions from my secretary in Princeton, where I worked at the time at the Institute for Advanced Study, uh, that I should call in right away. Now, at that time, you have to understand, we had no phone, let alone internet at the camp. The nearest phone was a payphone five miles away by the side of the highway. So I drove out to that phone and called Princeton to find out what was up. And Margaret, my secretary, sounded more excited than I had ever heard her before or since. Excited that they had managed to get in touch with him. Thank heavens we reached you, she said. We've got an emergency. And she told me how two days before, on July 18th, the Sunday Times of London had opened with a banner headline on their front page with the interesting question in screaming gigantic capital letters, the final experiment. And underneath was a lurid picture in color of a fireball and mushroom cloud. The article quoted my Scientific American letter extensively, though of course selectively, uh, to the effect that maybe this new accelerator at Brookhaven was preparing the ultimate experiment that would possibly destroy the world. The Sunday Times did have a caption that said, The Final Experiment? The actual title of that article was the equally sensational Big Bang Machine Could Destroy Earth. A few news outlets, including the New York Times and New Scientist, got the story right and dismissed the notion of a doomsday scenario. But the bad media coverage was bad. Apparently, one news organization even phoned the Brookhaven Communications Office to ask if the machine could have created a black hole that swallowed John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane, which had recently gone missing a few hundred miles north. That kind of coverage was enough to send many people into a panic. Someone wrote to Brookhaven and called Rick a, quote, genocide machine. Uh, newspapers all over the world picked up on this story and wanted to interview me. Of course, the Brookhaven management noticed, too, and they really wanted to talk to me. The director of the lab told me, I've got trouble. The lab director, John Marburger, was getting calls from the local congresspeople and the state senators, and they were expressing some reasonable concern. Marburger told Wilczek, you need to get the facts out there. You need to reassure people. He was really very nice about it, but between the lines, the message was clear. You f***ed up royally and you better fix it. He gave Wilczek a list of about 20 journalists and Wilczek had to set up interviews with all of them, 
using that payphone on the side of the highway. In fact, Wilczek actually had to make the journalist call him because he didn't have enough quarters to call all over the world. He also had to space out the calls because many other people wanted to use this isolated payphone, including a number of scary-looking truckers. So I spent two full days and another half day out on the dusty road, alternately talking to journalists and allowing the truckers their chances. Several of the journalists barely spoke English, and their grasp of the science was extremely tenuous. But I uh, did my duty and tried to be reassuring. And the tempest uh, gradually died down. So I suffered on behalf of science, but uh, just between us, it was kind of fun. It's more in retrospect than it was at the time. Brookhaven Lab management was even pleased in the end on the theory that all publicity is good publicity. The experiments went ahead famously, and the quarks and anti-quarks and the gluons showed up as predicted, and so far Long Island has survived unscathed. The story ends even better for Wilczek. Rick confirmed the theories he had worked on, and he won a Nobel Prize in 2004, along with David Gross and David Pollitzer. But the particle physics community had not seen the last of Walter Wagner. In 2008, Wagner filed a lawsuit against another accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland. Wagner made basically the same claims against the LHC that he made against Rick. Not one single qualified person supported Wagner's accusations. I was working at an accelerator laboratory when Wagner filed the lawsuit, and this was probably the biggest issue that communicators in physics had to deal with that year. Even people who weren't working at CERN, where the LHC is located, it really affected everyone. But the silver lining was that people suddenly cared about particle physics. Usually the word physics makes people get very quiet. But in 2008 and 2009, when people heard that I wrote about physics, their eyes would light up and they'd ask, so do you know anything about this machine that's supposed to blow up the world? And I was happy to talk about it. And usually by the end of the conversation, these people were really excited about the science that this new machine would do. You know, the reality. So it proved true to an extent that... Even publicity based on bullshit can be good publicity. So it was amazing for me to hear Wilczek's story. Because Wagner continues to use that Scientific American article to support his claims. And it's possible that this never would have happened. That no one would have listened to the rantings of a banana farmer if he hadn't had the word of a world-class physicist. The LHC started up in 2009. It ran, it's still running, and, well, here we all are. Earlier this year, scientists located what they now believe is the coveted Higgs boson, the particle that could explain mass. And the LHC was back on the front page of newspapers everywhere. But this time, for the right reasons. 
A big thank you to Frank Wilczek for sharing the story. If you'd like to hear more from him, he is the author of a few books, including The Lightness of Being, Mass, Ether, and the Unification of Forces. We've got links to that and more on our blog, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. That's all for the Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.